6. Because today we're beginning a new sermon series and it's on the life of David. And David is perhaps the most important person in the Old Testament. I mean, after God, that is. Um, certainly more is written about David in the Old Testament than anybody else. Now, David becomes a king, the second king of Israel. And his reign is the high point of the entire Old Testament. Something wonderful happens through David, the king. Something so wonderful that the Jewish people would forever wish to see a return to those days. Something so wonderful that they frame the expectation of God's people as to what God's saving work in the world actually looks like. Expectations that are fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. So, given how important David is, it is not surprising that the introduction of David in the story of God's people is a special and important introduction. And actually, that's what we find. David actually has a particularly special and important introduction. In fact, David is introduced to us by way of three stories. Story number one, we've just heard. Yvonne read it to us. Story number one is Samuel and David. And that's First Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 to 13. Samuel is directed by the Lord to find David and to anoint him with oil as king. That's story number one. Story number two is the second half of that same chapter. And you can, you can see it there if you've got your pew Bible open. And what happens is we've got story number two, Saul and David. And David enters Saul's service as court musician and then as armor bearer. And then story number three is Goliath and David. And that's the whole of chapter 17. And in that story, David acts so as to end a stalemate between the armies of Israel and the army of the, of the Philistine kings. Uh, and he does that by killing the Philistinian giant warrior named Goliath. So we're going to look at story one today. But something that I think that we should look at now is how these three stories interrelate. Because the relationship between those three stories is not simple. Story one, which we've just heard this morning, introduces us to David for the first time. And indeed, in terms of the flow of the narrative, we've not heard of him before. His name's not been mentioned before. And in this story, we meet a young man, um, perhaps 12, I don't know, maybe a little bit older or a little bit younger. But he's not a grown man. And he's the youngest of eight brothers. It's clear from the story, isn't it, that actually his family considers him to be perhaps something of an irrelevancy. Um, at least he is fit to be sidelined to some degree because they all go off and worship the Lord and it's okay for David to stay behind and look after the sheep. But at the end of that story, David is filled with the Spirit of the Lord. Now, story two, which we're going to look at next week, introduces us to David again, but as though for the first time. And you might like to look with me um, at verses of chapter 16, verses 18 and 19. And in verse 18 we read, One of the servants answered, he's talking to Saul, One of the servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. 
He is a brave man and a warrior, and he speaks well, and he is fine-looking. He is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. Then Saul sent messengers, messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. So David, son of Jesse, is introduced to us as though we hadn't heard of him either. And we're not surprised that David is with the sheep. I mean, that connects with what we already know about him. And we've already learned that David was a good-looking bloke, and that fits too. And the servant understands somehow that the Lord is with David. And likewise, that correlates with what we learned in story one, that he was filled with the Spirit. But hold on. When did David become a brave man and a warrior? That's out of sync. That doesn't correlate with a youth whose family didn't think to include in the worship feast. It's almost as though the servant is talking about something that hasn't happened yet, as far as we're concerned, which is story three, David's encounter with Goliath. And indeed, in story three, the story of David and Goliath, David is again introduced to us as though we hadn't heard of him before. Check out with me chapter 17, verses 12 to 14. In verse 12, uh, we read, Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, as though you didn't know, who was from Bethlehem, Judah. Jesse had eight sons, as though you didn't know. And in Saul's time, he was very old. Well, actually, that we didn't know. Jesse's, now stuff we don't know, Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Well, there's a lot of information that's given to us there as though for the first time. Information, a lot of it we already know. We already know Jesse, the Ephraimite from Bethlehem. We already know that he had eight sons. We've already met Eliab, Abinadab, and Shammah. But now we find out that only the three oldest boys are old enough to fight as soldiers in Saul's army. Only those three are 20 years of age or older. David, being the youngest, must really have actually been quite young, say between 12 and 15, maybe even younger, because he has four older brothers who are not yet 20, as well as three older brothers who are older than 20. In story number three, David's curiosity about the campaign provokes considerable hostility from his oldest brother Eliab, who finds it intolerable. That David has come down, he supposes, he presumes, that David has come down simply to be a spectator as though the battle was put on for his entertainment. Even so, um, um, story two, the story two, uh, which we've seen, introduces David as, quote, a brave man and a, and a warrior. Uh, in, well, that's strange because, because story two comes first and then we get story three. And in story three, David is certainly not a man and he's certainly not a warrior. So it's out of sync. Furthermore, at the end of story three, Saul asks, as he watches David go out to fight Goliath, Saul asks, whose son is that young man? And his friend Abner doesn't know. 
And that's very odd if we take story two on face value and assume that Saul not only has met David, but knows who his dad is, and on the basis of liking David very much, has already employed him as court musician and armor bearer. So that's an unexpected thing in in the story. What are we to do with these unexpected features of the text? Well, I think they're telling us some important things. I, I think firstly... What we've got here is three introductory stories. And what we learn is that David is worth introducing three times. Secondly, we can assume that actually there are many stories about David relating to how he became a public figure. And our author has chosen three of them. And thirdly, Having selected three stories, he puts them in a theological order rather than an historical order. His agenda is theological rather than historical. From the point of view of chronology, the order of the events described, story two may have come after story three. We don't know. I don't know. Maybe not. That doesn't matter. What matters is the narrator's agenda. And the narrator's agenda is that we understand who David is and what God is doing through him. And in actual fact, all of this prepares us for Jesus, doesn't it? Because in the New Testament, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, he's, he's, he's a special person, he's worth introducing, and in fact, he's not worth introducing just once, or twice, or even three times. Jesus is worth introducing four times. And likewise, we can, know, we can know for sure that there are a vast number of stories about Jesus and how he became a public figure. And the four authors of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they have chosen a selection of these stories. And as with David, the stories about Jesus are arranged according to a theological agenda rather than a historical one. And the reason that the authors have done that is so that we might understand what really matters, and that is who Jesus is. And what God has done through him. So we've got three introductory stories. Let's take a look at story one. You might like to follow it with me as we move down through it. 1 Samuel chapter 16 verses 1 to 13. The story opens with the Lord asking Samuel how long he will grieve or mourn Saul. I better introduce Samuel and Saul. Uh, Samuel, at this point in time, is an elderly prophet. Samuel is the last of a long line of, of a particular type of ruler, and those rulers were called judges. And they ruled or judged Israel after Joshua had led God's people into the land of Canaan. The judges ruled very roughly from about 1400 B.C. to about 1000 B.C., So very roughly about 400 years. And during that time, the nation of Israel was not really like a nation as we'd understand it now. It was a loose confederation of 12 or 13 tribes, depending on how you counted them, who lived scattered throughout the lands of Judah, Samaria, Galilee, and the eastern Transjordan. And they lived interspersed with the original inhabitants of those territories. Some of those inhabitants, they'd been able to kick out or annihilate, but many of them they hadn't. And that period of time, the era of the judges, 
was actually the darkest times in Israel's history. After, after a good start by way of Moses and then Joshua, well then after that Israel forgets more and more about the God who'd saved them out of Egypt and they start to behave more and more like the nations they live amongst in all of their idolatry and ethical depravity. And the book of Judges can actually be very depressing reading. Twice we read in the book of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And what we are to understand is that that desperate description of that state of affairs is a recipe for disaster, as it was. But actually, that's what the people wanted in Samuel's day. As Samuel begins to get older and older and older, and he's got two sons, but actually they're both ratbags, and um, the, the, the people want a king. And so they ask Samuel for a king. Please, Samuel, anoint a king over us. And you'd think that that, that would be good news. You'd think that would be a good thing to ask for. I mean, after all, many centuries earlier, way back at the beginning, the patriarch Jacob had prophesied that a great king would come out of the tribe of Judah, a great king who'd actually be king of the whole earth. And not long after that, a few centuries later, Moses anticipated, knew that God was going to send a king, and he wrote in his law a whole chapter of instructions for the future king. And you can find that in Deuteronomy chapter 17. So they knew a king was coming. But when the people asked Samuel for a king, he was sad. He knew that the people wanted a king, basically, in order to make everyone else around them. All the other nations had a king. They've all got a king. Why can't we have a king? And Samuel was displeased because this request for a king was basically just a contemporary example of an eternal problem. And that problem is this, God wants his people to be different, but God's people want to be the same as everybody else around them. And Samuel was also saddened because he knew that in asking for a human king, they were in fact rejecting God as their king. And he was right. God's will for his people is that he might rule them as king. And... um, if you've been following this line of argument, you would have heard me said that God's, rule, God's will for his people is that they be ruled by a human king, and God's will for his people is that they be ruled by him as king. And you might think, how can, how can both things be true? How can we be ruled by a human king and by God as king at the same time? Well, actually, David is God's solution in the Old Testament. David is a human king who desires to serve God wholeheartedly. And so through his reign... God reigns. But Jesus, of course, is the ultimate solution. Jesus, Christ, our King, fully man and fully God. So back in the days of Samuel, the people asked Samuel for a king. God did not give them David. No, not at first. He gave them Saul. Saul was a gift from God to his people. Saul was the leader that they had always wanted. And he was a disaster. But more about that next week. David will also be a, a gift from God to his people, but he will be the leader that God has always wanted. And that will go differently. 
So story opens, story one opens with the Lord asking Samuel about Samuel. Samuel, how long will you mourn over Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? And Samuel is depressed. He's really depressed about the spiritual condition of God's people and about the disaster that Saul's administration has become. The the Lord gives Samuel a new vision for the future. Behold, he is doing something new. So Saul is to fill up again his oil horn, presumably a ram's horn that has been fashioned as a container for consecration oil. And he's to go and anoint one of Jesse's sons as the new king of Israel. Now, a couple of things that we can note along the way about this. Um, uh, one of the things that the Lord doesn't say to Samuel is, go to Bethlehem, find Jesse, anoint his son David as king. Uh, then, you know, if you have any problems, report in. Otherwise, just, you know, just, just yeah, report back when you get... Back here. He doesn't do that. No, he, he doesn't reveal the whole thing. Um, uh, David's name is withheld. Um, Samuel and the Lord are going on a journey together, and the Lord has things to show Samuel along the way, things to teach him. They're going on this hand in hand. That's, that's a good thing to note. He doesn't give him all the information he could have, but the Lord doesn't. They're doing this together. Another thing to note is that given that that Saul is, is as as a prophetic elder of Israel, he's the recognized kingmaker, Um, uh, way back in chapter 9, Samuel anointed Saul with oil and made him king. One of the things we notice is that suddenly Samuel is scared of Saul. And we wonder, when did that happen? Because only in just in the last few chapters, whenever Saul has stepped out of line, Samuel has had the courage to give him a piece of his mind straight away. Um, where, where, where did this fear creep in? Well, actually, it might, it might be quite a, a good amount of time has passed. And... Um, and, and we note that, that Saul has he's become really toxic. He's a dangerous and treacherous man. He's presumably got a ring of spies operating for him. And given that Samuel is the recognized kingmaker, if he's found out there wandering around the countryside with his, with his oil horn, uh, he could be tried and found guilty for treason and executed. And he's worried about being put to death. So Saul has gone seriously toxic. He's a dangerous man. Um, In response to that, the Lord gives him a cover story. Take a cow and say that you're in Bethlehem to hold a sacrifice. Now, now the cow would be offered to Yahweh, to the Lord, as a fellowship offering. That is, it would be killed as a way of bestowing honor on God. But the meat would immediately be cooked and eaten by the entire community. A community feast, a community barbecue. Everyone coming together to pray and praise and hear God's word as well as to eat meat together. Meat that could not be kept or stored because they hadn't invented the refrigerator yet. Um, The elders of, of Bethlehem trembled when they saw Samuel coming. He's a prophet. Has some crime been committed amongst us that we don't know about? Is he coming as an instrument of God's judgment? No, he comes in peace, he says. Everyone's invited, the entire town, to the worship feast. Everyone can come, but you must consecrate yourselves first. Um, Now, there's no law of consecration in the Old Testament, no set rules that tell us exactly what they would have done. 
However, consecration is described in various places, and so we know that the people would have probably physically prepared themselves for a time of worship by washing and changing their clothes, and perhaps from abstaining from food and drink and marital relations between the interval of time um, between the feast being announced and the feast being ready. Spiritually, the people probably would have prepared themselves by praying, repenting of any outstanding sin, seeking peace with their neighbors, etc. And we see that Samuel, in particular, oversees the consecration of Jesse and his sons, which perhaps may have included prayers for them. Uh, Then Samuel is introduced to um, Jesse's sons. When he sees Eliab, the firstborn, he is impressed. Exactly by what we don't know, we're not told. But there's something impressive about Eliab, his height perhaps, or his appearance. And Samuel immediately assumes that Eliab is God's chosen one. And actually that kind of rings bells for us because that's what happened back with Saul. When Saul was anointed as king years earlier, Saul was a very impressive young man. He stood, we we were told, a good head higher than everybody else in Israel. So given that he's that tall, I mean he's... Obviously going to make a great king, right? Verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And the Lord is making a point by way of a contrast. The point is the Lord alone Sees the heart. The the Hebrew word for heart, leb or lev, um, and it can be translated and it is translated either as heart or mind. What the word means is it refers to that secret place within us within which we make decisions of the will. The heart is the seat of the will. The, The place where we experience and possibly hide our true motives. The place where we make and hide our true justifications. Um, the heart is the seat of the will, and God alone sees straight through it. In Hebrew thought, the heart is not the seat of the emotions, of the feelings. No, where they reside is the gut, is the belly, Um, perhaps the liver or the bowels. And that's a surprisingly insightful insight. Uh, No, the heart is the seat of the will. And in the New Testament, we meet Jesus. And one of the first things we learn about Jesus in John's Gospel is that Jesus knows the heart of every person. Jesus sees straight through us. Jesus knows the heart. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God with us. We take the point too far if we, th- if we think that God is saying that appearance is therefore irrelevant. It's not. As you may have noticed already, David's validity as king is indeed, as with Saul, at least partially indicated to us by the narrator who describes his appearance. In verse 12, we get a threefold description of his appearance, and literally, he's described as ruddy, beauty of eyes, and handsome appearance. Uh, Ruddy actually means that he was paler than everyone else, which would have made him striking in appearance. Um, beauty of eyes, it means beauty of eyes. It's as ambiguous in Hebrew as it is in English. It could be saying that David has beautiful eyes. 
And that could mean, uh, in their culture, as well as in many traditional cultures, that you can tell a lot about a person by their eyes. You know, an evil person has evil eyes, and a good person has good eyes, and David had good eyes, you could tell he was a good egg. Um, or it could be beauty of eyes, meaning beauty in our eyes. He was, he was a fine-looking bloke. And then, and then handsome appearances is the last phrase. Um, however it's translated, we, we, we get the point. David is physically of fine athletic build. He has winsome good looks. And actually, those things are gifts from God that David is going to need in his ministry. The point is not that appearance is irrelevant. The point is rather that the Lord sees things that we can't. And that therefore, his choice is his choice. The sovereignty of God over the election of David as king of Israel is being emphasized. That's the first thing we learn. This is God's choice. When it says that the Lord spoke to Samuel, I take it to mean that Samuel heard the voice of the Lord in his ears. The Lord spoke to him audibly, just as he had been doing since Samuel was a small boy, when he first heard the word of the Lord and mistook it for Eli's voice. But I also take it that only Samuel heard his voice, not the others present. Now, with respect to the presentation of sons, Eliab is not the one, he's not the chosen one, nor Abinadab, nor Shema, nor the other four. And You know, I can imagine Samuel getting a a bit nervous at this point. I mean, he's taken a great personal risk in response to a revelation from God, in response to God's word. He's traveled to Bethlehem with a cow and with an oil horn, the possession of which could have cost him his life. He's gone under the radar and now he's run out of sons. Did he mishear God? His experience seems to contradict God's word. We notice that it is Samuel himself who takes the initiative in finding a solution to this problem. He asks if there are any other sons. And there is one, the youngest, left behind in order to look after the sheep. And boy, it must have surprised Jesse and David's brothers enormously that this one, David, David, the youngest one, this is the one, this is the chosen one. They'd clearly figured out, uh, clearly figured that he'd not be missed. But he's the chosen one. Of course, that doesn't really surprise us, does it? Because we've been paying attention since the beginning of the Bible, and we've noticed in the story so far how God loves to choose in just such a way as to upset people's expectations, especially in the ancient world, the assumption that the firstborn had the God given right to rule. God is regularly upsetting that expectation. And we've noticed how already how God delights in the story so far. God delights in using the weak ones, the overlooked ones, the despised or rejected ones. He delights in using those ones in achieving his purpose. And perhaps also we've noted with resonating approval, it's rung true in our hearts that this young David is out looking after sheep. Because being, you know, just like Moses looked after sheep, 40 years in the wilderness looking after sheep. And in the ancient Near East, being a shepherd, it was not a great job. It was a despised occupation. Being a shepherd was low work, hard work, and dirty work. And you have to have a servant heart to be a shepherd. 
Because you have to keep on, you have to keep on putting their interest ahead of your own welfare. Um, and doing this for these stubborn, stupid animals. And I've never had to work with sheep, but I understand that they are stupid animals. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not like goats, they're a lot smarter. Um, and God's word continually makes that connection. Being a leader of God's people is like being a shepherd, a connection or association that would not have been considered complementary in the ancient world. We remember the Egyptians, for example. We remember from Genesis that they considered all sheep and goat herders to be detestable. So in the choice of David, shepherd, youngest, there is an ironic twist that we ought to savor and enjoy. Uh, Paul invites the Corinthian Christians to consider the same ironic twist in their own election, that they too have been chosen by God. And Paul writes to them and say, says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the presence of his brothers. And from that day, from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Well, um, David's name is withheld right to the end of the story. This is special. We, we are going to read this name another 600 times in the Old Testament and another 60 times in the New Testament. David, a Hebrew name probably meaning beloved. Um, Samuel's anointing David with oil is symbolic. It is a sacrament. What is a sacrament? A sacrament is a physical thing with a spiritual meaning that the Lord has commanded you to do. Um, as Christians, we have two sacraments, don't we? We've got two sacraments. We've got the sacrament of baptism and we've got the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Both of them are physical things with spiritual meanings that the Lord has commanded us to do. They are also symbolic. However, the fact that they're symbolic should not confuse us. In Western modern thought, a symbol stands it's an abstraction standing in for something that is otherwise not present. So, for example, a physicist can write E equals MC squared on her whiteboard without the whiteboard vaporizing. Because the symbol stands in for something that is abstracted and is not present. That's not how symbols work in the Bible. Biblically, symbols are parables of prophetic power. They are signs that seal a real promise of God. So, therefore, we see here, we see the symbol um, 
Samuel pouring oil out on David symbolizes the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon David. We see the symbol and the thing symbolized together and the thing symbolized realized immediately. Samuel anoints David with oil and the Lord anoints David with the Holy Spirit at the same time. Symbol and thing symbolized realized together. Symbols in the Bible are parables of prophetic power. Um, God saying yes to a promise then and there. To, to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit in power, to be anointed with the Holy Spirit, there are three ways, four ways of saying the same thing. And we as readers, we know what this means because we've seen it with other people in the story so far. Others people being filled with the Spirit. Moses and the elders of Israel being filled with the Spirit and prophesying in Numbers chapter 11. The artisans and craftsmen who built all the furniture and, 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 and stuff to go in the tabernacle. They were, in fact, they're the first people in Exodus. They're the first people in the Bible to be described as being filled with the Spirit in order that they might know how to, how to make this beautiful thing. And the judges who ruled in Israel in earlier times, such as Samson, many of them filled with the Spirit. And Saul himself, earlier in the story, filled with the Spirit, prophesying and praising. And what does it mean? Well, it means that David has the personal, powerful presence of God within him. It means that David has met Jesus. It means that David has been born again. It means that he has met the Lord personally and been transformed from the inside out by that meeting. It means that wherever David goes, the Lord is with him. And that is precisely what we'll see. Introducing David, story one. Two really important things are said. David is the Lord's choice. And the Lord is with him. Now you too are the Lord's choice. And the Lord is with you. Amen.